Welcome to the latest installment of The Curious Capitalist. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also local business owners, startups and entrepreneurs from across the state of Connecticut. Welcome to episode 20 of The Curious Capitalist, brought to you in association with the Connecticut chapter of Conscious Capitalism. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andy Posner, who is the chief exec of the Capital Good Fund. Andy, welcome along to The Curious Capitalist. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to to chat with you. Oh, it's great to have you. So come on then, tell me about the Capital Good Fund. Yeah, we are a nonprofit social enterprise that I started 11 years ago now, it's in 2009, in the aftermath of our previous financial collapse, uh, although that one was not induced by a pandemic. And we exist to try to tackle the issue of predatory consumer loan products like payday loans, pawn shops, rent own, and the like that charge triple digit interest rates or sometimes high double digit to lower income Americans, often vulnerable families. And the way that we combat that issue is by offering a suite of small dollar consumer loans that are equitable. And they range from $300 to $25,000. They are most commonly used for vehicle purchase, repair, or refinance. Immigration expenses, so like uh, the cost of applying for citizenship, a green card, deportation defense, and the like. We also do loans for security deposits. And among other things, we've rolled out a crisis relief loan that is specifically designed to help people impacted by the pandemic and the economic crisis that's resulted from it. Mm-hmm. We, In addition, we also do one-on-one financial and health coaching. And One of the things that's really exciting is that had we had this conversation even four years ago, I would have told you that we presently only operate in Rhode Island, where we're headquartered. Now, however, we lend in five states, and we just got our lending license for a sixth state, which is Texas. So we've grown tremendously over the last couple of years, and the reason for that is not only is the predatory loan industry I mentioned worth $200 billion, and therefore we need to grow, Mm-hmm. But it is our aspiration to be self-sufficient through interest income so that we're not perpetually dependent on grants. And doing so requires growing quite significantly. And we're on track for hitting that goal in 2025. That's amazing. That's absolutely brilliant. I have experience of a few of those things. So obviously, the immigration costs, which are quite interesting. Yes. Um, but, you know, and also during the pandemic, you know, people are, are really struggling. It's fantastic that you're there to support. Can you tell me a little bit about how you ended up doing this gig? How did you get this gig, Andy? I mean, come on. Yes. People who knew me 10, 15 years ago would not have guessed that I'd be running the fastest growing nonprofit consumer lender in the country. Um, the story really goes back to 07, 08, when a couple things came together. I grew up in Los Angeles. I moved to Rhode Island for grad school at Brown. And I was doing a master's in environmental studies and got interested in financing mechanisms for clean energy. Now, I should note, I don't have a background in financial services or even business or anything related. My bachelor's is in Spanish. And my goal in high school was to drop out and be a pro tennis player, actually. Oh, fantastico. Um, (laughs) Well, injuries put the kibosh on that. But um, when I started learning about this, how the structuring of a financial instrument could unlock the potential of, say, solar energy, I was kind of blown away. 
And then two other things happened. So the first is I learned about Muhammad Yunus and international microfinance, and I saw how a financial instrument could also unlock the potential of you know poor and low-income women around the world to um, move up the economic ladder. And then the the financial collapse and Great Recession hit, and I didn't really initially understand why some banks going under would really have an impact on the people that I was interested in, which is people of color, immigrants, domestic violence survivors, other marginalized and vulnerable groups. And so I'm fluent in Spanish. I started speaking to folks in the in the Providence community and started learning about how payday lending and subprime mortgages and all that were targeting and devastating these communities. And when I learned in particular about payday loans, which in Rhode Island carry an average interest rate of 261%, wow. I thought to myself, okay, well, from the economics classes I've taken, I would assume that in a competitive market, somebody would be offering a better product at a lower rate. And there weren't. So no one was really offering an alternative to these products at equitable rates. And so I decided to start an organization. And interestingly, Capital Good Fund's mission is to both create pathways out of poverty and advance what we call uh, an inclusive green economy. So we do energy efficiency loans that are targeted at moderate to middle income homeowners for climate mitigation, and then all the other products which are really focused on the lo lowest income uh, families. What an amazing journey. What do you wish that you'd known before starting out on that career path? Because it's a bit of a wiggly road you've taken to where you are today. Well, answering that question is a little complicated by the fact that I've never really had a job before this. I started the organization at 24. Wow. I was fortunate that I didn't need to work while I was in high school. And other than uh, I was a bicycle messenger on the Paramount Pictures studio lot in Hollywood for two weeks. That's and awesome. And I sold luggage. <laughs> yes, it was <laughs> what very... A gig. <laughs> oh, it was. And it was funny, too, because... I, I biked across the country in 2005 and I took a semester off from uh, college. So when I returned, I had kind of this open window before I resumed classes. And so I thought, all right, I'll try this job. And everyone else was there because they were hoping that they would meet some producer and, and land a job. <laughs> and so everyone there was showing up all with their makeup. They were practically rehearsing and they were hoping to run into Meg Ryan or whatever. And I didn't <laughs> care. So I was just biking around it. It, it was really funny. Wow, but, what a great job. <laughs> yes. And then I, I did sell luggage for two months and they went out of business. So um, this is really my well, only... Hopefully that wasn't <laughs> your doing, Andy. <laughs> no, no. Was, that's that's think, not a resume highlight, that one. <laughs> no, no, but it's a good story. All right, maybe I was fired. Ah, <laughs> oh, good boy. <laughs> so this uh, is really, but, you've seen this need and you've, you've jumped in with both feet and found a solution, you know, or, or, or one of many solutions. Exactly. And candidly, had I known how hard this would be, I might have been dissuaded from this. My, my naivete probably did me good. Also... Everyone who, quote, knows banking and financial services told me at the outset that this wouldn't work. And I should note that we've now done 5,500 loans for $11.6 million with a 95% repayment rate, even though the average FICO of our borrowers is 580, they're 90% low income. So I didn't know any better. I did have to figure it out on my own because no one really has our model. But... 
I did benefit from not exactly knowing what I was getting myself into. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Well, it's certainly gone better than the luggage company for sure, Andy. It, yes. <laughs> it looks a little bit better on the resume <laughs> and it's doing well, hey, some we're, great good. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, it, it's one thing to keep a business alive, mm -hmm. right? It's another thing to keep a nonprofit alive and growing uh, yes. because that's the thing. I mean, we only did $300,000 worth of loans in 2015. Last year we did over 3 million and next year we're going to do 12 million. So the growth has been tremendous. Uh, our revenue last year was 3.3 million. We're, we've already exceeded that. We're on pace for probably about 5 million this year. Uh, we're up to 36 employees and that's just hard when a lot of your growth has to come from grants. Yes. Um, one of the ways that we've managed our growth is through a very innovative impact investment vehicle we created, which maybe too nuanced to get into in this conversation, but um, I'm not aware of anyone who's done the type of model we've, we've set up. It's through something called the direct public offering, and we've raised over $4 million from impact investors. And it's really as a result of that capital that we've been able to grow so much because 90% of all the loans we've ever done have been since 2016. It really took us a long time because, as I said, we had to create our own business model to do that and then to build out the tech platform and then to raise the funds to, to execute on the plan. So how did you first hear about conscious capitalism? Concept is wrapped up in, it goes all the way back to my learning about Muhammad Yunus and microfinance, which naturally led to social enterprise and trying to use free market principles to unlock good. I've become a little bit more skeptical of free market principles over the years, in part because I've realized that the notion of a free market is uh, corrupted. You know, for example, if you look at the payday loan industry, right, what we talked about at the start, in a free market that functions well, there should be market pressure to lower the interest rate. Mm -hmm. The reason that doesn't happen is because the payday industry has a very powerful lobby. And in Rhode Island, for example, for 10 years, we've tried to cap the interest rates at 36%. And they have a lobbyist who's friends with the Speaker of the House who blocks it every year. Yeah. And so, you know, anyways, I, I, that has definitely impacted my view. And I've become much more interested and aware of the need for the public sector to because absent the public sector we for example could never solve the issue of poverty and that's our mission mm. but affordable loans are critical but can't do it on their own you need affordable housing uh, mass transit living wage jobs strong unions equitable tax system you know etc 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 anyways it's been an interesting evolution from wow social enterprise is the most amazing thing and can solve everything to it's really powerful there's a lot more we got to do. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done for sure. There really is. I know that payday loans in the UK, you know, just incredible, you know, and I, I know people who've got into this trap of consistently, you know, taking payday loans and then not managing to pay it back. And they just get so stuck in that systemic debt that there's just no way out. And you're right. It's not just about sort of one silver bullet solution. It's, there's a whole plethora of things that need to be addressed, you know, to, to try and pull people out of this, out of poverty, you know, and um, it's fantastic, even if you're making a dent in it, that's for sure. Exactly. You know, and, and thinking about the good you guys are doing, we talk in conscious capitalism 
terms of this higher purpose, you know, that your company has a higher purpose. What does your higher purpose for your company mean to you? What I reiterate to my staff, almost at every staff meeting, which we have monthly, is that we are not a financial institution. We're a social justice organization that uses financial services to advance social justice and environmental justice. And that's an important distinction. I mean, obviously, as a nonprofit, mission has to come first, sort of, you know, almost from a legal perspective. Uh, I mean, for example, if we have a profit or net income, as we call it, we have to reinvest it in the mission. But beyond that, we're really thinking about how do we use our product offerings to solve deeply entrenched injustices? For example, as I'm sure you and the listeners are aware, the Trump administration has done practically everything in its power to demonize, cage, deport, harass uh, immigrants. Mm. And in response, we not only accelerated our immigration lending program, we increased the max amount to 20,000 because the cases were getting more expensive to fight. Mm. We also rolled out new products. So for example, we now will do a loan to help someone post bond if they're detained by ICE. Wow. You come up with ideas like that when you start from the point of radical social justice. And if that's your starting point, then you're going to ask yourself, how do we achieve that? And to achieve that, you have to do things like create a detention bond loan, which is not the most profitable product. You have high customer acquisition costs. The risk is we manage it well, but you know, it's still there. But that's essential because the thing I always tell people is that if you want to start a for-profit lender, non-bank lender, and make money, easiest thing in the world, charge 100% APR. If I wanted to, I could take our business model, set it up as a for-profit, raise $50 million in VC money at the drop of a hat. And I know because people have asked me to, and I could charge 100%. I'd be undercutting the competitors by quite a bit, but I'd still would not be promulgating opportunity. I would just be offering a slightly less bad product. Mm -hmm. So the goal cannot just be for us to break even. What we've done is we've baked into our very business model equity. Meaning that we know that if we just wanted to break even, we would focus on our larger, safer loans, but that wouldn't be core to our mission. So we have very specific targets around how many loans we do that are $300 to very low income, uh, and how many we do that are maybe energy efficiency loans for moderate income where we really generate our revenue. And this is a constant conversation we're having with our staff and our board. The other thing that we've done is that we've focused not only on having a diverse clientele and over 70% of our clients are are African-American or Latinx, our staff is as well. And this isn't something that we started as a result of George Floyd, where all of a sudden all these companies are saying, oh yeah, we're going to commit to these things. No, for 11 years, we focused on, on having a diverse staff from top to bottom, not just in entry level positions. But it really requires being extraordinarily intentional about how you go about things. That is amazing. It's so refreshing to hear as well, I have to be honest. Thinking about that culture that you're talking about within your your staff and within the organization, what language would you use to describe your organization? Well, it's interesting because we just onboarded a couple of new staff. And whenever I have my introductory meeting with a new employee, there's I have a little speech that I give and I tell them there are three things I want you to focus on. And I call them mission, business and customer service. The first thing is, are we changing lives? If we're not, nothing else matters. The second one is business. Are we operating as efficiently as we can and capturing all the value that we create? 
And third, are we creating a phenomenal experience for our clients? And that, I think, has set the tone for our culture. And if you look at our Google reviews, for example, I check this very often. This is an important metric for me. We have about 305 with a 4.8 out of 5 rating. Those are all, you know, legitimate peak customers just deciding I'm going to review. Now, I don't know about you. I've never reviewed a lender. And it's a sign of... Definitely not, Andy. Definitely not. Nope. Yes. And so it's a sign that the experience they're having with us is about more than just getting a loan that they understand we're here to provide wraparound services, to do coaching if they need it, to make referrals, to work with them if they get into difficulty. I mean, for example, in March, when we saw that COVID was going to be the crisis that it's become, we sent out an email to all 2,500 plus of our borrowers and said, anyone who needs it can get a no questions asked three month deferment period. We had about uh, 15% of our clients take us up on that. As a result, we have seen no degradation in our loan portfolio because the people who needed it took advantage of the deferral. The rest continue to pay us because why wouldn't you? We're, we're uh, your nonprofit community lender. Yeah, absolutely. And so it certainly makes sense from a business perspective to, to act that way. That's not why we do it. Um, that's sort of a, a secondary benefit to that's just how we operate. Mm. How do you maintain and be sure of what measures, checks and balances do you have in place for your employees who are essentially handling the day-to-day client base that they are continuing to put forward those key elements and drivers behind the business? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it comes down to, first of all, as CEO, you really set the tone. Yes. And I think there are a lot of things I don't do well, I'm sure, and I know. Setting the tone is something that I'm good at. And one of the things I realized, and it took me a while to realize this, was that staff wants to be inspired by me. I mean, I'm a poet as well, and I've started, you know, not I don't read my own poems, but I read inspiring poems at staff meetings, and I share client stories. And I found that kind of being a little bit more bold and motivational really resonates with the staff. Yeah. The next key thing, though, is to make sure that your, particularly your middle managers, have really not drunk the Kool-Aid, but that understand and embody and know how to embody the vision and the culture and the expectations. But ultimately, you have to live those values. You can't just speak them. And so how we treat our employees says a lot about the culture we have. And for example, when COVID hit, the first thing we did was we sent an email to all staff and say, you're all working from home. None of you are being put at risk. All of you are guaranteed your job uh, as long as this lasts. Anyone that needs to take time off, do it. You know, no questions. Like we just, we really did everything we could. And I mean, obviously we can't pay market rate. You know, we, we our starting pay is $40,500, but we offer three weeks vacation and a 401k match and health insurance and a great work culture. And the other thing that matters is that I'm at 95,000. So in fact, in our bylaws, it's written, we can't have more than a 3x difference between starting pay and top CEO pay. Wow. You know, all of these things. and, And I think one of the big things I've learned over the years is that oftentimes when you read about innovation, you hear about the big idea group lending with Muhammad Yunus. But what you don't realize is that it's not the big ideas, but rather all the little steps you take to implement, whether it's a big idea or not, that add up to big change. Mm -hmm. I used to think that there was some silver bullet we could make 
you know, like if you said to me, if you were asking me to consult on how to create a great culture, you can't just do like a training or some new initiative. It's countless small steps you take that demonstrate over and over who you are and how you want to operate. Because ultimately authenticity, well, the, the current president notwithstanding, authenticity will normally carry the day. The only way to be authentic is to be authentic. Yeah. It needs strong leadership all the way down, but also those constant, like you said, little steps, those little reminders uh, that you're on the, that sort of that journey together. I like that. If you could snap your fingers though and, and make one cultural change within the company or the model, what would it be and why? Um, well, we, I would say the one thing that troubles me the most is the notion of do well, do good. Specifically, the notion that you can generate market rate returns, in other words, not sacrifice anything, and still solve an issue like predatory lending. The reason that is such a problem, that's not a culture at Capital Good Fund, that's the culture around the impact space, is that the money we lend out, we borrow. You know, we're not a bank, we don't take deposits, so HSBC lends us a million dollars, the Catholic Diocese of Providence, you know, other faith-based investors lend us money, and then we lend it out. The interest rate we pay on that cannot be more than 5% average, or else our model doesn't work. And what we end up running into is that a lot of people have absorbed this idea that all I have to do to solve these problems is to invest in something that says it solves the problem, and I'll get paid the same thing I would have otherwise. So let me give you an example. There's a company called LendUp that has raised, their initial round was like $100 million in VC money led by PayPal and others. And if you go on their website, they talk about how they're trying to solve payday lending. You'll also note, however, that their starting APR is about 700%. Now the people who invested wow. in them if you lend money to LendUp, which is how they capitalize their loan fund as well, I'm sure they're paying 12 to 15% because of course they have the margin. So if, we, if I go to that same investor and say, I'm really solving payday lending, but I can only pay you five, their response to me is, why would I lose that 700 basis points with you? Yep. My answer is because the other place isn't actually doing good, right? Yeah, but that is something that I wish I could change uh, yeah. because it's not a regulatory thing. It's it's a mentality. Yeah, that's a moral obligation. It's a moral wow. obligation, and we need about 110 million dollars in new debt capital uh, to hit our break-even goal. We know exactly how to deploy it. The business model is rock solid. 11 years of history, detailed financial projections, and a customer acquisition strategy, cost model, everything. Raising that capital at at a blended rate of five percent is going to be tough. Mm because the people who do big debt investing in fintechs, and there are a lot of them, are looking for 12 to 15%. Yeah. If a company, say not a financial company perhaps, or a financial company wanted to make a shift towards more consciousness and doing real good, what would your advice be to get them on that path and start it if you like? Well, the first thing is to understand the problem, of course, but the second thing is I would say, you have to realize that your inputs drive your outputs. So for example, in the case that we were just talking about, the rate at which you borrow drives the rate that you have to charge your clients in addition to your losses. Similarly, if you want to be an equitable employer and pay your employees a living wage, then your input 
of your workforce is going to have to be more expensive. And so something else is going to have to give. You're going to have to raise your prices, which means that you might not be able to deliver a service to low-income folks. And that's a huge issue in the like organic food arena, or you have to accept lower profit margin. All of this to say is it goes back to this thing I started pointing out about uh, do well, do good, which is you have to sacrifice something. You know, you can't have endless growth. You can't have magic triple digit uh, growth, you know, over time or consistent quarterly profits. Something has to give. And you have to go beyond what's superficial. Uh, we're not going to recycle our way or not using plastic straws our way out of climate change. We're not going to Tesla our way out of the climate crisis. Um, you also have to understand where your real impact on the world is. For example, many financial institutions now are saying we're going to become carbon neutral in our operations by some year, or maybe some already are. I'm sorry, but that does not really matter when you are investing hundreds of billions of dollars in Canadian tar sands. That's where your climate impact is. And so you have to go beyond the superficial and you have to understand that something has to give. And if you're a publicly traded company, that's hard. Mm. And so I'm actually very skeptical that big business can truly be a force for good. At this point, the best we can hope for is for them to withdraw support for unjust practices. But part of the problem is that they're so powerful that they block legislation that would force good behavior, whether that's a carbon tax, getting money out of politics, supporting unions, voting reform, you know, all these different things that have to be put in place. And so when companies respond to George Floyd's assassination effectively, right, by mm -hmm. announcing, putting on their website, Black Lives Matter, huh, I, th th okay, you know, that doesn't tell me anything. And they donate 100000 a million dollars, doesn't tell me anything either. You can't donate your way out of the problems we're facing either. You're absolutely right. I'm just thinking, you know, who's going to be your campaign manager when you uh, when you run in the future for president? Because uh, if I become a citizen, you've got my vote, Andy. You've got my vote. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I'm uh, diplomatic enough to be a politician. Uh, <laughs> That's why I like you. <laughs> That's why you've got my vote. <laughs> well, I will say that, in fact, we just had a staff date and where I gave an hour-long presentation about where do I see Capital Good Fund going and what's our place within what's going on in the broader ecosystem in America and the world? And one of the things I talked about is that as a 51c3 nonprofit, we're really not able to do much in the way of political advocacy. We typically can pick a couple of issues a year like payday reform that we advocate for. I'm starting to actively think about and engage my board and staff on how do we set up an, an affiliate entity that would be like a 51c4 or maybe even a political action committee, though I wish that those didn't exist, that would do hard advocacy on policy? Because clearly the last four years have shown that everything is politics and there's no such thing as a just world without a vibrant democracy that is actually fighting for that, that represents people's interests. So that's something I'm thinking about. But it's difficult because a lot of our funding comes from big banks and people who are, I mean, obviously you can tell I'm a pretty progressive liberal guy and a lot of our funders are not. And I've gotten into some hot water with uh, personal statements I've made. Uh, for example, when the administration was putting kids in cages, which they continue to do, you know, I did not pull punches on that. I'm a Jew 
whose parent and not parents, but grandparents and, and distant relatives were impacted not only by the Holocaust, but by Stalin. Mm. And so I, you know, but I got into difficulty with that. Uh, and it must so, be a hard balancing act, you know, you, it must be a very fine line you have to walk morally to... Uh, uh, I'm not that careful, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, I, I agreed to not post on LinkedIn my most... Uh, political thoughts but I mean if you look at if you google my name like you know I've written poems that call what what's happening at the border with children in cages a type of uh, concentration camp and you know I'm gonna be who I'm gonna be but the the fine line is speaking up without uh, turning off people who might support capital good funds work because you need to you know exist but I mean and I will say that it's interesting the dynamic because we have some of the biggest banks in the world which Many of them do invest in private prisons and tar sands oils. A lot of them provide us grant support. And the people that we work with in the community development realms at these institutions are absolutely wonderful. And we love those relationships. And of course, we need them. The issue is just you, you can't offend the bank to the point that it views it as a reputational risk to get involved with the organization. And yeah, you're right. I mean, for me, it's tough because as a founder, I'm, I'm fairly connected <laughs> to the organization <laughs> when people hear me speak. Mm. But you can't be silent either. Good for you, Andy. I, as I've said, you've got my vote. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Well, hopefully when we, when we launch our political advocacy arm, we can engage you on the oh, work we'll be doing. Absolutely. I, you know, one of the things that through doing these podcasts, one of the things I've got much joy from is speaking to people and seeing some tangible results not just contemplating one's navel and, and being a very good public speaker and spouting off all these wonderful things. I want to see results. I want to see change and I want to see action. And it's been wonderful because irrelevant of the scale of the business I'm speaking to, there is good being done and you're doing quite a big chunk of good. And it's uh, it's heartwarming to hear. It's uh, It's a very positive thing. Thank you. We're going to change the world, Andy. We're going to change the world. <laughs> we have to. It needs got changing. no choice. <laughs> we have no choice. So when you're not focused on your work, this is, you know, what I'm hearing from you is that you, you have a job and you run a company that does some incredible work in many different areas. And I can see that it's not a nine to five job. You obviously, no. this is, this is a, a life's work, if you like. But what do you do when you're not, engaged in that way what do you do to relax what do you do to chill out well honestly the last couple of years have been i have not done a lot in the way of relaxing other than staying uh, off linkedin yeah <laughs> yeah pretty much i i mean i uh so i was a you know an amateur bike racer up until the election and then i got into an accident and broke my elbow a few weeks before the election and then i kind of lost the rhythm and then I've been so engaged on political issues. For example, I've talked already a lot about immigration. I went down to the Texas border and I did a hunger strike, not a hunger strike, but I, I did a fast kind of protest at one of the, the camps where the kids were being held. And particularly the last couple of months through to November, I've just said, I'm not having any fun. So every minute I'm not working, I'm writing postcards to voters, I'm doing text message outreach, I'm, you know, all sorts of things, writing essays, poems. I, I've got a book of poetry that I'm just doing the final editing for, all related to kind of what's going on in the last four years. I've told myself, because this is not sustainable, I mean, I really am out of shape and I'm pretty tense 
Uh, I've told myself that after the election, no matter what happens, I will take some time to get back into bicycling because I, to relax, I used to do a lot of cycling. I have a tattoo of a bicycle, you know, and mm -hmm. um, I, did a lo I did a lot of reading that wasn't related to politics and a lot more just, I have, you know, I have a 19 month old son and I, I'm not even going for walks anymore. As soon as I'm done with work, I go straight to <laughs> get into bed and start doing my political work. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, for a lot of, activists the last four years have been pretty brutal yeah and it's been interesting because one thing i'm really proud of is that capital good fund has responded extraordinarily well to covid yes. uh, it helps that we're an online lender it helps that we've we came into the crisis financially healthy but we have not pulled back on lending in fact we've had four consecutive months of record loan volume we, like i mentioned we rolled out the crisis relief loan so we've been as busy as ever and so I've been working more hours for Capital Good Fund while I've also increased my other activities. But look, it's okay. I mean, I'm, I don't have to worry about money. I'm healthy. My wife and I are both employed. Family's healthy. I have it great. You know, I'm not yeah. like the people that we're serving are struggling so much right now. Yeah. And that's why we're doing this because some 20 to 40 million people are going to be evicted in the next couple of months. I mean, the scale of suffering is absolutely stunning. Wow. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Yes. And all preventable. I mean, we're the wealthiest country in the world. And, you know, what's, one of the things was if you start a nonprofit, you have to have a bit of a martyr complex. I think you can tell that I have one. And <laughs> just a switch. Just a tiny yes, bit, yes. Andy. It's just coming through a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so when I was getting started, I didn't yet have a sense of how unjust i mean i'm i'm white i'm jewish but here that's not a i'm not really discriminated against for that so i'm basically a white male so i did not grow up experiencing what people of color do and, and women in this country so when i was starting i thought well should i really dedicate so much time to social justice in america shouldn't i do it you know in somewhere else el salvador or kenya or a place where you normally think of needing this but not only have i realized just how astonishingly unjust we are but I, it occurred to me that if we, with all our resources, can't solve these problems, then it, how do we expect it to be done in places with fewer resources? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you don't really have any downtime, understandably so, but if you could, you have to eat, right? <laughs> you don't have any downtime, but you have to eat. If you could have dinner with any figure in history, who would it be and why and what questions might you ask? You can have a couple if you want. Oh, that is a very... Good question. You didn't think it was because... going to be easy, did you? <laughs> well, and I don't want to give the normal kind of answer. I don't know. I suppose right now it would be interesting to get Lincoln's thoughts on where the country finds itself as we barrel towards what is going to be an absolute chaos and catastrophe of an election. Mm -hmm. um, it would be good to hear him remind me of how bad things were when he took office, when the South was kind of winning some of the early battles and perhaps I could find some spiritual sucker from, uh, from him. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be interesting to also meet with uh, Henry Thoreau, but today and to get his thoughts on what we've become and what we might do about that. You know, I, I think, uh, and just in general, I mean, as a poet, there are all sorts of poets that uh, I would love to meet and or have met and just hear them talk and how they think about and understand the world and, and turn it into poetry. 
William Blake and Percy Shelley and Pablo Neruda and mm. all of them. Sounds like it's going to be an interesting dinner party, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> what, what would you say has been your greatest success, both professionally and personally? Personally, uh, it was probably I was nominated for the Pushcart Prize for Poetry uh, in 2019 wow. for a poem I referenced that was about the uh, child concentration camps at the border for immigrants. Uh, professionally, I mean, the uh, debt offering that I alluded to, the way that we structured it, I'm so proud of it. it it's so forward thinking and it's been so successful. And it was in particular, it was something that nobody thought would work. I mean, the quick version is we created a nonprofit subsidiary that is basically, it's a pass-through entity and it issues debt to impact investors and it donates the proceeds of those investments, which Capital Good Fund uses to invest in our growth. So it almost looks like equity, except the debt is held by the subsidiary. And then there's a very creative structure for how Capital Good Fund gets the money back to the subsidiary to pay the investors. That probably made no sense, but and it's even more complicated than that. But like I said, we raised over $4 million from over 100 impact investors through this vehicle. And I came up with it about five years ago. I've yet to find a single person who structured the investment the way we did, mm. uh, which basically has allowed us to issue debt without it showing up as debt on our balance sheet mm. um, because nonprofits can't issue equity. So I, I suppose it's a bit of a Pyrrhic victory because most people can't make heads or tails of it. <laughs> but I take immense satisfaction from it. It's your success. You own it. It's yours. On the flip side of successes, uh, there are, of course, obviously disappointments and fears. What has been your greatest fear that you've ever had to face in your life? My greatest fear? I thought you were going to ask about failures. I've had plenty of those. <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> no, I want to know about your fears. <laughs> uh, well, probably what's happening right now. Honestly, I mean, I've never had such a feeling of terror because it's not just, I mean, this is not just an election. I mean, this is really, are we going to continue to be a democracy or not? And if America ceases to be a democracy, who is going to take the lead on solving the, the problem that really keeps me up at night, which is climate change? And particularly with a 19-month-old and thinking about the kind of future he's going to have or not have, that scares the heck out of me. And obviously another four years of a Donald Trump administration is going to be another four years of making the problem worse and really likely running out of time to, to do anything of substance. I mean, it's still not too late, but so that's it. I mean, time is we're, ticking. we're time in is ticking. Time is ticking. Time is ticking towards the election and towards the climate crisis becoming truly irreversible. Tell me about your plans personally and professionally for the next five and 10 years, other than obviously changing the world, which, uh, which is going to be a, a tall order, but one that's uh, very noble. What are your plans for the next five or 10 years? Well, professionally, I want Capital Good Fund to hit its operational self-sufficiency goal by 2025, which means that we continue to grow and innovate. I want to start that political advocacy affiliate so I can really get more involved in, in the public policy side of things. I want to get my first book of poetry done and published, which is, well, getting it's it like, published is one thing. Yeah. It's nearly happened, um, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's nearly happened, yes. 
And I want to continue to use my writing or do more writing. Uh, I, I do poetry and then essays. I, I'd love to get some sort of regular columnist post at, you know, whether that's, I don't know, Fortune magazine or, or something like that where I can really have a, a bigger platform because, you know, I mean, I write a lot, but it goes on my website and a couple hundred people read it and it would be nice to have a, a bigger platform for my writing. Mm. And then, you know, besides that, continue to raise my, my son with my wife and enjoying our beautiful little beagle. If you go on our website, uh, on our staff page at the bottom, there's a, a headshot and bio of him with the title Chief Canine Officer. Fantastic. We have one of those uh, in our office as well. So uh, yep. <laughs> every, every, <laughs> every office should have one. So to wrap up then, tell me, Andy, how can people find out more about you, your work, your company, websites, social media? Yes. So to learn about Capital Good Fund, they can go right to Capital Good fund.org and it's capital you know t-a-l um on twitter we're at cg fund they can also folks can reach out directly to me if they want to learn about how to donate or invest in our work i'm at andy at capitalgoodfund.org and if they're interested in my poetry and my sort of political essays and the like they can go on my website which is andy posner p-o-s-n-e-r.org Amazing. Andy, it has been an absolute pleasure. I feel full of optimism, but yet very well informed about the problems our world has. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist. For more information, you can visit the website, connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org.